This morning we are wrapping up 1 Peter. Um, I hope it's been helpful and hopeful as we've gone through this and seen how to live in a broken world as believers in Christ, that we can have hope through the resurrection of Christ and that our hope and our salvation will be made complete in when Christ returns. And so Peter's given us specific instructions along the way about how to live um, in the midst of all of these things, some very specific, and how Jesus enables us to live that way through the power of the Spirit. And so today he's going to give us his final instructions in 1 Peter, and I think it's going to be helpful for us in light of our current situation. Remember that Peter is writing to believers who essentially were in fear of their lives on a daily basis. Um, the fact that they believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and they believed in that um, and they were no longer Jewish and they were also not saying that Caesar was the emperor um, put them in danger on a daily basis in their life. And so I imagine their lives were marked with fear and anxiety. And so for us, we are also in unprecedented times um, where it's hard to know what the right thing to do is. And we also live in an age of anxiety, and I think the pandemic has just kind of hit fast forward on that for a lot of people. And so this morning, we're going to see how Peter gave instructions for how to make it through, how to deal with anxiety, with uncertainty, and how to stand firm in your faith through all of it. And so let's read that together. It's 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read verses 6 through 13 together. Um, so if you want to turn there with us, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that that same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered for a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Silvanus, who you may not recognize that name, but that's probably Silas. That's a name you will recognize who traveled around with Paul on his journeys. A faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And so as we work through this passage, we're going to see kind of two different parts. We're going to see what we need to do to stand firm and then what God does in us and through us in order for us to stand firm. And so first we can see how we stand firm. And he calls us to humble yourselves. We see this in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Right? And so he says, humble yourselves. That's something that we choose to do. We talked about that last week when we talked about clothing yourselves in humility. It was the picture of a servant putting on an apron saying, I'm ready to serve, and having that daily mindset of saying, I am ready to serve. I'm ready to serve God. I'm ready to serve others, other believers, my neighbors, whoever God puts in front of me. I am willing to serve and humble myself before them. 
So he also talks about exalting ourselves. And I think it's important to note that God exalts us. We do not exalt us. We do not make much of ourselves. But I think in our lives, we actually do a lot of things that make ourselves look better or to exalt ourselves. Sometimes we avoid mentioning certain things or avoid certain topics because we don't want people to know that we don't know a lot about that. Or we avoid certain situations or activities that we aren't good at. Or maybe we pretend to have it all together. Or that everything is fine, that we've got everything under control. We hide things. You may talk a lot to cover up something. Or you may not talk at all so people won't know and recognize your foolishness. I think in our course of our daily lives, we actually do a lot of things to make ourselves look better, to try to exalt ourselves. And I think if we're really honest about that, it's kind of exhausting to keep track of all of that and to put on all of those fronts and all of those things so that people think better about us than we really are or we want them to know. But what Peter is saying is that only God can exalt you. No one else, not even ourselves. Because God determines what is worthy to be exalted. Only the one who is holy and perfect can determine what is worthy to be exalted, to be raised up, to be made much of. And if you notice, he also determines when, right? At the proper time, you will be exalted. God doesn't work on our time schedule and say, oh, I'm going to give you this at this time because you want it or you asked for it. He works on his own schedule according to his own plan is when he provides those things for us. And so for us in that, I think there's some good and some bad. Um, The good news is that we only have to seek and please God and nobody else. That's it. That's the only thing. And I think that when we actually understand that concept, it's incredibly freeing in the other areas of your life where you're seeking approval or doing certain things to think, I only have to seek and please God and follow his instructions. And so understanding what other people think, what other people may say, is insignificant compared to being in a relationship with God and being approved and accepted and loved by him. The bad news is, for us, is that's really hard to do. We have been trained our whole lives to do certain things, to live a certain way, to act a certain way, to present certain things to people and hide certain things, to desire certain things, and it's really, really hard to break free of that, to leave all of those things behind. I think we carry them with us wherever we go, and so it is hard, but it is able to happen as we trust in Christ, and I think Peter helps us here in the next verse with how to do that, where he talks about casting your cares on him. So we cast all your cares on him because he cares about you. And I'm going to connect this um, concept of casting our cares on him with humility, which we talked about last week. And I think C.S. Lewis, he has a great explanation for humility, and it's this. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Right? So it's not saying, well, I'm nothing, I'm little, I'm meek, or I'm weak, or whatever it is. No, it's just thinking about yourself less. And so our goal as believers is to think about ourselves and our own desires less. But I think we all know, right, when you stop doing something, whether it's a diet or it's a habit or whatever it is, when you say, I'm just going to stop doing that, unless you fill that in with something else, you're just going to go right back to what you were doing before. 
And so if we're going to think about ourselves less, the thing that we need to fill that in with is thinking about God more, which is what he says. Cast your cares on him. Give all those things over to him. Think about him. Pray to him. Ponder him. And so thinking of God more, trusting in him more, puts us in a proper perspective to be humble, to cast our cares on him. And I think if we are humble and trusting God, our cares are less, things we worry about, because most of our, I think if we look at our lives, and I kind of did this this week, is most of our cares and most of our worries and most of our anxiety are about getting things for ourselves, right? Whether it's a promotion, whether it's love from someone, whether it's approval or credit for something we have done, or getting more authority or even luxuries that we want in our lives to live with, right? All of those things create fear, or not fear, but anxiety and worry to say, how am I going to get that? How am I going to make that happen? Is this going to be how I live? Is this going to come true? But when we know that God is mighty and he cares for us, it changes our mindset. And I think if we understand that, it lessens our anxiety because we're not worried about trying to get all of these things for ourselves, but how God can provide those for us, that we can give those things over to him and say, God knows what's best for me. He will provide for me. He will give me what I need at exactly the time that I need it. And if these things happen, great. If I get these things, great. But if I don't, I'm still solid in my relationship with God, which is better than any of those other things. And so we experience anxiety, I think, when we forget that God cares for us, that he exalts us, that he provides for us, that he gives us all that we need. And so we are under the care of a sovereign God who controls the course of history. And so he's big and mighty and powerful, but he's also intricately involved in our daily lives on a personal level. And the, the truth behind all of this, and I think this is just something to think about maybe throughout the week, is that the God of the universe cares about you on a personal level. The God who created everything that we see and everything that's around us, He cares for you. Right? And so that's what we need to remember. That's the truth that we need to hold on to when we experience worry or fear or anxiety, is that God cares for me, the controller of the universe, the ruler of the universe, the great and mighty creator is caring about you and your life. And I think if we truly understand that, it will relieve some of our stresses and things that we worry about on a daily basis. And the next thing he calls us to do is to be alert. We see this in verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. It says, be sober-minded and alert. So, Life, I think the Christian life is to be taken seriously. That doesn't mean you have to be serious all the time and you can't have any fun or anything like that. But I think we need to be serious and intentional about living our Christian life and growing in Christ. Because when we relax, when we take a break, it leads to back backsliding, it leads to complacency, and it opens the door for temptation. So I think we need to know how we are doing spiritually. 
Am I weak? Am I strong? Am I growing? Am I stagnant? Where are my weakness? Where are my temptations? Where are my strengths? I need to be aware and alert of how I'm doing in those moments so I can be aware of where I might be tempted, where I might be pulled off track. And I think it's important to know all of things because he's very clear, you have an enemy. You have somebody who is out there looking to mess you up, right? He's looking for weaknesses. And I think the lion comparison is a good one for several reasons. And I think he kind of, kind of describes him sort of like the lion who's out in the, uh, the, the savannah looking for the weakest antelope, right? They look for the slowest and the weakest one, and that's the one they go after. And so if you're doing what you're supposed to do as a Christian, if you're relying on God, if you're in the Word, if you're praying to Him, if you're being strengthened by Him and looking to Him, I think you're going to be pretty safe. Now, I can't guarantee that you're never going to be tempted or anything like that, but I think it's less likely. Although, I will admit, there would be particular joy for the devil to take down someone who is a solid, faithful believer. We see some of those in the news sometimes. I think also when he kind of looking around, I thought of it this week as uh, the, Satan is looking for essentially a crime of opportunity, right? If you're doing what you're supposed to do and you're being safe and you're following God and you're seeking him on a daily basis, you're safe. But it's like when you leave your purse in the front seat of your car while you go inside and somebody walks by, that's a crime of opportunity. Somebody's going to see it and say, hey, it's really easy for me to grab that purse. So I, they just take it. Or leaving your phone on a table in a restaurant where you go to get a refill, Right? Those are crimes of opportunity where it's just kind of, hey, it's presented to me. And so I think he's watching to see where we are weak, where we are leaving opportunities open to be tempted, to be pulled away, to be distracted from following God. And so I also think the lion comparison is interesting because right, the, we call the lion the, essentially the king of the jungle. And I think it makes it think, seem like Satan thinks he is ruling, right? He is the ruler of what is happening on the earth, which is not particularly true, which we'll get to in a minute. So I, but I think he's prowling around and he's looking to destroy Christians and he's looking to destroy churches. And it is a true spiritual battle. Um, I mean, meant to bring my copy of this, but if you want to get an inside look of what this looks like, on a daily basis, um, the, there's a book called The Screwtape Letters um, by C.S. Lewis. Um, if you have never read that, it's, it's worth a read. It's not a difficult read. Essentially, it's a, let, it's a series of letters between a demon and his supervisor about how they're tempting a new Christian. And so um, one of the things they made us do in seminary when we read through that is they made us write our own letter about what, what a demon would say about how to tempt us and how to get us off track. And that's a truly challenging experience to say, these are the weak areas of, in my life where I think I could be tempted, I could be pulled away, or where I might be sinning. And so I think it's also important to note that <clears throat> the devil's schemes are not obvious. They don't come with big flashing red signs. That's why they work. That's why he can tempt people. That's why he can pull them away from the faith. That's why he can distract them. That's why we get led into sin, because they're sneaky and they're subtle and they don't seem like they're dangerous at the time. But if, and just on that point, 
if you don't think you're vulnerable to temptation, or if you're saying things like, well, I don't ever sin, or I don't ever do everything, anything wrong, I think you're in an especially dangerous place. Right? To think that you cannot be tempted is a dangerous place to be because we all are dealing with the problem of sin in our lives. <clears throat> and the response to that, for us to that is to resist him. Right? The devil is a formidable foe. I think at some level, we talked about him ruling earlier, I think he knows at some level his time is limited. That one day God is going to come back and his time is going to be over. But I think we all understand an enemy or an opponent who thinks he's almost out of time is especially dangerous because they'll do whatever it takes to win, whatever it takes to get on the, under the, the, their opponent's skin. And so I think he's especially dangerous in that situation. But I think the danger for us is not that we have an enemy and we are helpless against him. I think the danger for us sometimes is that we fail to resist when we encounter his schemes, we, we aren't aware, we're not watching them, we don't know where, we're temptation, where our temptations are. We won't arm and defend ourselves with the armor of God or with word or with prayer or with other believers. And so we must resist, we must be aware and fight with the power and the weapons that God has given us. And so that was our part, things that we can do to stand firm in Christ. But there's also things here that show us how God helps us to stand firm. And we see these in verse 10 and 11. It says, The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. And so first we see that God gives us grace. That all grace comes from God. He is the source of grace the only source, he is the only way to overcome your sins and your failures is through, failures is through the grace of Christ that was, of God that was demonstrated through Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. As we believe and as we trust in him that we can receive that grace, right? Because he has called us, he has chosen us to be in him and anyone can come and be with him and experience his blessings and his grace. And I think that's an important note because grace, what he's saying here is that grace has eternal ramifications. Notice how he says, once you suffer for a little while, right? but you'll be with his eternal glory in Christ. So he's contrasting your suffering on earth and how short it will be and how small the time of your suffering will be, but your glory will be eternally with Christ. So we were called to that. And so the troubles of the world are essentially a drop in the bucket compared to the glory that we will have in eternity with Christ. And then we see Peter name four specific things that God is going to do in us. First, he is going to restore us. And this is talking about that through suffering, God will produce a fully restored person. And the concept here, one of the concepts that could be here is, is like a doctor setting a broken bone, right? That the bone is broken, and in order for it to heal properly, he sets it, meaning he puts it back in place so that it can grow back the way that it's supposed to be. And so God takes us, and he essentially sets our heart. He restores it. 
He makes it whole so that it can be made complete. It can be made right. He fixes our broken places, and we are complete in Him. We need nothing else. And one of the other things it can also mean is about creating, of giving the initial order and the initial shape. I think this is what we talk about when we say when you become a believer in Christ, you are a new creation. You are being made new, and God shapes us and molds us into something different. The old desires and sin nature and worries and anxieties pass away, and we have new desires and new things that we seek, and we trust in God. He makes us new so that we can be restored. We can be free from the power and the penalty of sin free from seeking the approval of others, and able to resist the temptations of the enemy. Then it says he establishes us. And so in your uh, translation, you may have establish or strengthen or support. And the idea here is that God would make us firm in our faith. Right? You see t-shirts and stuff all over the place, like established in whatever year it was. And what they're essentially saying is, We started in this year, we were established, and we have been doing our thing. We have been living out our vision, our purpose, our mission from that point forward. And that's what essentially he's saying is, I will establish you with a new life, and then you will follow me, you will seek me from that day forward. We have a firm position in Christ. We are established. He also says he will strengthen us. Um, I'm not going to give you a whole lot of examples on what it looks like for you to be strengthened in Christ. I think we all understand that, that he gives us strength to live, strength to follow him, um, strength to do the things that he has called us to do. But then he also supports us. And this word for supports carries the connotation of settling or founding or to place a foundation. And so what we're seeing from this is that God will place us on a firm foundation. We see in the Psalms that God speaks of founding the earth, of establishing the earth, of setting it on its foundation. And he used the, Peter uses the same word here about establishing the people of God in their faith to set them on a firm foundation. And this image of, of being supported is an image of security, that people who cannot be moved no matter what comes at them, they are grounded and rooted in Christ and built on His foundation, and no matter what comes around them, no matter how difficult life is, no matter whether they're being persecuted for their faith or whether they're living um, freely and doing those things, it doesn't matter. They will be firm on the foundation of Christ. And that was four, but I'm going to add a fifth because I think this next piece about He will have dominion forever is also important for us to understand in light of what we talked about earlier, is that essentially what he's saying is that God will rule forever, right? And I think this is important because we talked about earlier, Satan thinks he's ruling, but he's not the true ruler. He's only able to do things for a certain time and only what God will allow him to do. But the fact that God is having dominion means he is ruling now and he will rule forever. Not the devil. God will rule forever. And one day, suffering will end. Anxiety, worry, fear, temptation, all of those things will disappear when God comes in his fullness and rules on the earth. As we kind of wrap this all together, 
We're going to go through the last three verses, 12 through 14. Um, I'm going to, I didn't have this, but I'm going to give you, because there's some weird phrases in here, and you're going to be like, well, who are these people? Um, we talked about Silvanus, that's likely Silas, who traveled around. So he either helped Paul write the letter, or he delivered the letter um, to the recipients of the letter. Then he talks about, in verse 13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Um, this is most likely a reference to the church, not an actual person. Um, the other interesting thing here is a lot of people think this is also code because Babylon was not a big deal in this time, but Rome was a big deal. And so they used Babylon instead of Rome so that if anybody, any of the Roman officials got the letter, they wouldn't know that there was a church in Rome that they needed to go looking for. And so that's what that is. So just there's a couple of phrases in there that you might think, what is he saying here? That's what it means. But even in the midst of this, right, he says, I write to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So he writes to encourage us, right, that you aren't the only one going through this. Even in our group, there are people who are going through and dealing with the same things that you are dealing with. And Peter here reminded us a few verses above that. There are believers all over the world who are experiencing the same thing. You are not in this alone. You are not doing these things. You are not the only person trying to live the Christian life. And one of the benefits, I think, of having a discipleship group is you know very clearly that there are two or three or four other people with you who can share your struggles, who can say, this is what I think I'm trying to be tempted with or how this, the devil is trying to pull me off track. And you can encourage one another and say, oh yeah, me too. And that happened to me two years ago and this is how I got through it. I think that's one of the benefits of having people who gather together regularly to talk about their faith. And he reminds us, right, that this is the true grace of God. This is the true gospel, the real deal that Jesus was and is the Messiah. He is the one who saves, who can save, and who will save. He can save you and free you from your sins. And all you have to do is believe and ask Him. All the other things that we trust in, all the other things that we worry about, all the other things that we pursue in our lives will fade, they will pass away, they will disappoint, they will not live up to the hype. All the things that we work so hard for will pale in comparison to a relationship with Christ and loving Him and the eternal glory that comes with that. And then he calls us to, right, stand firm. And I just imagine that of just standing firm. Not sitting, not lying down on the couch, not relaxing, but standing firm, setting your feet and saying, I'm going to live Christ. I'm going to do what he's calling me to do. I'm going to love him and serve him and love my neighbors and serve my neighbors. To go after it. To not be filled with doubts when suffering comes or when hard times comes, but to endure in Christ by standing firm. I also thought that it was interesting this last sentence. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. If you think back over this series, it's been like suffering, 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 hard times, suffering, suffering, and all of these things all the way through. And he ends a letter essentially about dealing with suffering by saying, peace, 
peace to you, peace to all of you, to seek peace. He's calling us to live peaceful lives, to live the way that Peter calls us to live all the way through, to be humble, to be subject to government authorities, to be good citizens, to be good husbands, to be good wives, to live at peace in those relationships with humility and trust in God and seeking Him in those, to have peace in Christ, to know that you are already accepted, you are already made new, you are restored, you are established, you don't need approval from other people, you can have peace in your life in Christ. And we can have peace in our hearts as we trust in Him. As you trust in Christ and you give your life over to Him, you can be at peace. I think that's one of the things you hear most commonly from new believers is, I just feel at peace that all the other things have melted away and you realize the folly of some of the things that you've been chasing after. When you submit to Christ on a daily basis and you serve Him, you just feel at peace that your anxiety, your fear, your worries, your doubts, your temptations just kind of melt away as you trust in Him and seek Him and believe in Him with all that you are. And so I think that's right. The answer is to seek peace. That's how we endure suffering. That's how we live for Christ. That's how we love others is to seek to live in peace with them through the peace that God gives us in our lives as we trust in Him. Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, we come before you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. Thank you for a chance to hear from your word, to be encouraged by Peter's words and what he says to us, that he does leave us seeking peace. He does leave us with a way to live in a a broken world, a world filled with uncertainty and unknowns and our lives filled with maybe fear and anxiety or worry or whatever that may be, but that you give us a way to deal with that, to live through that, to help us in that moment. So God, I pray that you would help us to seek you, that we would reflect this week that you are the mighty creator of the universe, but that you care for us. You are intricately involved in our lives. And so we don't have to worry, we don't have to doubt, we don't have to chase after things like the approval of other people or certain status things or whatever it may be, certain titles or whatever it is because we are secure in you. You give us all that we need. And so help us to remember that you are with us. You love us, you care for us, you guide us. And help us to seek you, to know and understand that you support and you establish and you strengthen and you restore us. You make us new so that we can live the way that you have called us to live, the way that Peter calls us to live that we can only do all of those things through your strength, through your power, through relying on you. So help us to seek you above all else. In your name I pray, amen.